0: The following presentation is from the 41st Annual Addiction Treatment Leadership Conference presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers held in Washington, D.C., May 5th through the 7th, 2019. Here's the CEO Luncheon Leadership Strategies in a New Era and Culture of Treatment Delivery. The speaker is Craig Dio. He's the Managing Director and Senior Leader at the Euron Studer Group.
1: Most everyone has found a table and a seat. Wow. I can't tell you how excited I am to, to be able to introduce our speaker today. Just a little bit of history because you know I'm an old guy and I like to look at the old days. Um, ten years ago we, uh, we had the CEO luncheon at uh, the annual conference and it was real interesting because you know they didn't restrict it to just CEOs and executive directors. You know if you could buy a ticket you could get in and so hard to believe but most business development direction <laughs> directors were the first ones to buy tickets because they wanted access to the the decision makers there was the other phenomenon that took that was going on at that time and that is usually after the golf tournament was over uh, it was probably easier to see bigfoot walking through the lobby than it was to find a ceo still at the conference you know And uh, so we attempted to to, uh, remedy that by having the CEO lunch, and then it it struggled and finally just died out. So I am very pleased that, you know, at my urging, uh, John Driscoll just picked up this ball and said, let's let's do it, and let's do it right this year. We didn't have budget for it, and so uh, we were, I'm so thankful for Betty Ford Hazelton for not only helping us to find a speaker, but uh, to to step up and make sure that happens. So I am thrilled to see everyone here understand they've had to turn people away. That's even more exciting because there's so much energy in the room about the association right now, and you will not be disappointed. So although Craig Dio and I are just acquaintances, I am going to read his bio because it's really fun. Since 2006, Craig Dio has been the senior leader for the student group, that's a, an organization we're all familiar with, speaking team, and he now also serves as managing director across Huron's healthcare practice. Splitting his time between executive leadership and speaking, Craig is a highly regarded expert on topics including leadership, engagement, quality, and patient safety. He works with medical staffs and healthcare executives across North America and Australia to create highly reliable organizations where employees want to work, physicians want to practice, and patients want to receive care. I mean, if I had three uh, wishes uh, that could be granted, those would be the, the three that I would want. He co-led the organization's journey to become a recipient of the Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award in 2010. In 2016, Craig combined his experience with the latest evidence to author the book, The E-Factor, How Engaged Patients, Clinicians, Leaders, and Employees Will Transform Healthcare. In addition to his full-time work with the Studer Group in Huron, he serves as faculty at the American College of Healthcare Executives. Born and raised in New Orleans, New Orleans, as we said in California, but I've been educated, Craig received two bachelor's degrees from Louisiana State University. He received a master's degree in healthcare administration from the University of Minnesota. And Craig now lives in Pensacola, Florida, where he serves on the quality committee of his local health care system. He's married to Julie and is a proud father of Sam and Jack. Please welcome Craig Dio.
0: Great. Thanks, Art. Yeah. That guy sounds awesome. Hi, Uh, good afternoon. It is truly a pleasure to be with you today. I have heard of your association for a long time. I've been to many organizations in healthcare, some of whom are new and emerging, others who have been around for a lot longer than uh, any of us have been alive. But the trajectory that you are on as leaders in healthcare is really remarkable. I mean, I think you're at one of the most interesting, dynamic, growing parts of what we do uh, to provide health services to the communities that we serve and so it's really an honor to become better acquainted as you heard in the introduction uh, this is what i do when people ask where i work i say well that's sort of a two-part question i live in pensacola florida but my office is a window seat on delta airlines and so for about 20 years i've been uh, working with organizations like yours all across uh, the united states Canada. I was actually in Toronto two days last week, and Australia. We've served over 1,000 healthcare organizations to do exactly what you heard this morning, which is to create better places for the three key stakeholders, better places for our employees to work, for our physicians and providers to practice, and for our patients to receive care. And the intersection between those three is the magic. And many organizations have a competency in one, but forget the others. And what I'll tell you is that what we've learned over those 20 years is that the commonality across all of that, when this stuff sustains and organizations have success and pick up trophies at conferences like this, or when organizations don't and they're not successful, it is about leadership. It is always about leadership. And that sounds very obvious and probably uh, not what the group of you know highest ranking officers in the room want to hear, because wouldn't it be nice if the answer wasn't, it's all about you? All right? Wouldn't that be great? Like, Actually, there's this piece of technology you can buy, and then all this just goes away. It's very easy. It's very cheap. But I want to differentiate between leadership and the other word that we too often conflate to mean the same thing as leadership, because leadership and management are two very different things. And often what I hear is people say, you know, I want you to talk about leadership. Talk about these specific things. I'm like, I think you meant management, which is a laudable, noble profession that we need. But that's not the same as leadership. Management is probably what most of us spend probably 98% of our time on. It's doing things the right way. It's taking the quality manual this week and actually deploying it to the standard and then taking that to the next level. It's about leadership. It's about doing the right things in the first place. And if there's an association I've worked with that probably more embodies the difference between leadership and management, I would say it's this one because you are doing difficult things at uncertain times. What you're gonna be doing on the Hill later this week, how many of you are doing that? That's awesome. What you're gonna be doing having those conversations is continuing a tradition that this group of leaders has done now for a few years that is truly changing the way people access care in their communities and the kind of care that they receive for some of the most underserved uh, health conditions that we have in the nation. There is, uh, this is the group of human beings who's taking the stigma away, who's trying to reduce the separation that's come about between the way that we provide care, and it's really fun to partner with some of the, of you in the room on this, and in fact, it was great to see John and Jim this morning. We actually work with a couple of you in the room with Harmony Foundation in Colorado, and of course with uh, Hazel and Betty Ford in, in Minnesota, and so what you're going to hear today is actually work that's not theoretical, but it's being put into place in some of the organizations right here in this room. So the underpinning of what we've learned and the many organizations that we've worked with is this fact, that the people in your organizations are there for reasons far beyond the pay and benefits, which is self-evident, because you've seen some of those paychecks over the years, and you've seen your paychecks over the years, and there's other ways to make lots of money. I have not, you know, and, and there's ways to make a good living in the professions that we have, But if I'd go ask the people at the front lines in your organizations today why they're really here, you would hear some incredible stories. And let me just sort of see a show of hands in the audience. Is anybody in here a nurse? Show of hands. So, uh, round of applause for our nurses. It is Nurses Week, so let's not miss that opportunity to say thank you. Do we have any physicians in the audience? None, so we'll just talk bad about them for the next hour. That's, we just blame them as a scapegoat. That's great. So let's talk about nurses for a second. Um, how many of you employ nurses, show of hands? Anybody work at your place? Oh, I thought that might be a commonality. So the most intimidating speaking I've done over the last year is that twice I've gotten to speak at the pinning ceremony for a group of graduating nurses. Amazing honor. And I felt completely inadequate to do this. I felt like a little bit of a fraud, because I am not a nurse. I don't know what to tell these nurses as they begin their careers. But luckily, I talk to a lot of nurses. So for six months prior to this talk, I would tell the nurses in the audience, I'm going to talk to other nurses. What should I tell them? And I would get emails and letters. And I got to stand on stage and read guidance from other nurses. And one of the things that I heard that I actually read as a letter from one of the the nurses, who's a 40-year chief, well, she's a 40-year nurse, a chief nurse of a large health system in the East Coast. She said, what I want to tell the graduates on the stage today is, first, thank you, because you're completing one of the hardest undergraduate degrees that there is. And two, I want to make sure that you don't become the statistic that is the biggest problem in our profession, because if you're like most other nurses, in two years, you'll no longer be a nurse. 30% 30% of nurses who graduate in two years are no longer practicing nursing. And she said, we need you in this profession. Then I added, as an aside, I think she also means that our organization, she's got some vacancies, and if you'd like to apply, uh, she's got like 40 spots. Something gets in the way of all that passion that we have day one in these professions until you know year two or year 22 on the job. So let's eavesdrop on a dinner conversation with a nurse. Now, I don't know about at your house, but at my house, dinner conversations often begin with, hey, honey, how was your day? Which, if you're married to a nurse, you know is a terrible question to ask because it's going to be gross. Whatever comes out of their mouth, it's just not good dinner conversation. But how do most nurses answer that question? Hey, honey, how was your day? Do they begin like this? Do they say, well, first, let me pause for a moment of silent gratitude and reflection (laughs) because today was a gift just like the last 20 years have been. What an honor it's been to practice this noble profession. You know, I just love it. Is that how most nurses respond to that? How about the physicians, if I would ask them to rate their engagement and morale on a zero to 10 scale, where are most physicians on that scale? 10 being high, zero being low. Let me me give you the polls. A 10 is, gosh, I love this noble profession to which I was called to serve those years ago. I hope my children and grandchildren have the honor practicing this brand of science that called out to me at a young age, I'm a, I'm a 12, would you let me be a 12? And a zero, the other end of this continuum would be, uh, this job is sucking the life out of me. In fact, every day since I've graduated from medical school has been worse than the day before it. Which means if you're seeing me on any given day, that's the worst day of my life. That's how that works. And so if, if the... Retirement accounts at the magic number. I'm gonna to toss the keys to the young sucker and you can take over my practice for the next 20 years. So on that zero to 10 scale, where are most physicians? Give me a number. This is the well-informed, appropriately pessimistic group at the front. Thank you very much, because you said three and four. And yeah, it's somewhere between like a three and a five. Somewhere between a three and a five. And if we talk about the topic de jour in those communities, So yesterday, I did the board retreat for a hospital in Alabama, and the session that captivated all the interest from MedExec right before that was a speaker who talked about the most common theme right now in medical staff sessions, burnout. Burnout. So what percentage of physicians practicing medicine today are actually burned out? So north of conservatively, And in some specialties, it's two-thirds or 70% of the profession actually burned out. And we believe that this is the opportunity for leaders to intervene because there are some organizations in the same community pulling from the same labor force with similar missions where the people working in there are at the 99th percentile of engagement, giving discretionary effort when no one's watching, putting all the things of the quality manual into place, providing the right care for the person in front of them, even though they have the same barriers as other places, and there's others in the same community that are in the bottom 10%. And when you look at the difference, the difference and the variation is about leadership. And our mission is about closing that gap. And it's easy to think about that sense of mission when you talk about the folks in clinical roles, but that wasn't my path. I have a master's in health administration, uh, and I love what I get to do to make an impact in a different way. But if you ask people in those administrative roles while they're in their roles, you'll also hear incredible stories. We heard one day from a young woman who said, you guys don't know me directly, but my name is Ashley. And I open the mail in the corporate offices of our health system. My job used to be so bad that the only way I could get out of bed in the morning was to give myself a little pep talk. And the pep talk was this. Ashley, you have to go to work today, because your job's open the mail. And if you're not there to open the mail, we might miss a bill. And if we miss a bill, we might go into collections. And if we go into collections, we may not have all the money we need someday to pay for all this technology and salaries. So, Ashley, you have to go to work today because your job is to open the mail. And I remember sitting in my chair reading this thinking, Ashley is arguably the furthest person in this organization from hands-on patient care and still has a line of sight between how her job makes a difference in the life of somebody else. That's powerful. And then I remember there was sort of two questions in my head. One is, what would her pep talk be if she worked in a shoe factory? There's nobility in making shoes. There's nobility in all meanings of work. But in the organizations you serve, everybody can attach to that sense of meaning and purpose. Everybody has a need for meaning. Viktor Frankl taught us that. But some people have to volunteer or have hobbies to go practice and get that meaning. You get to have employment and find meaning in what we do. But 20 years on the job, that's gone dim. The difference there is leadership. So I've met a lot of people like Ashley. When I've gone to organizations like yours and meet people and ask them what they do, I met a housekeeper one day and I asked her, what do you do here? And it seemed self-evident, because she was pushing a cart that included a mop. seemed self-evident. But she said, what do I do here? Well, my job is to be the front line of preventing infections here. That's powerful. And so the next question I asked when I read Ashley's letter is, Like, I wonder if she came up with that pep talk herself. Because when I asked that person, what do you do here? And they said that I am on the front line of preventing infections. I said, that's an amazing answer to that question. Did you just come up on that, like, on the fly when I just asked you? And she says, no, I've worked here seven years. Every morning we have a huddle where our leader has us put her hands in. And we look each other in the eye and remind each other we are the front line of infection." And that's how I've started every morning at work for the last seven years. My leader helped me understand that about me. You can't change anyone, right? This is like the field that you lead, right? You can't change anyone. You can't engage anyone, but you can create an environment around people that supports their ability to be their best. Have you ever worked with somebody in an organization that didn't enjoy it so much and they quit and worked somewhere else and you ask them like six months later, how's that place? And they go... Worse. I can't imagine it, but it's worse. And then they quit, and they worked in a third place. And you're like, how's that place? You're like, even worse. Like, Dante was right. There's seven concentric circles, as it turns out. I'm getting closer with each progressive job, right? And then have you ever met the people that didn't like the place and they go to another organization and it actually lifts them up because the culture and something about it actually helps them maximize their potential? You have the potential in your communities to be that employer where you make an impact not just on the people that you serve, but on the people that actually work there and provide the care. And that can create this virtuous cycle that you see here. So we believe there is passion in the workforce that has gone dim. And if you've worked in healthcare for 10, 20 years, you've been re-engineered, leaned, and Six Sigma'd the joy right out of it. Right? The things that you thought you were going to do day to day, you didn't realize included typing for 24 hours a day. Like, that's not really what I was signed up for. My favorite depressing commercial on TV in the last year is uh, this mom and dad, and they see their son, who's like 10, sitting in the living room on the couch with a laptop out. It's kind of dark. He's typing away, and they're just looking at him. He's typing away. And they go, Timmy, and he goes, not yet. He's typing away. And they go, isn't that cute? He's playing doctor. Yeah, I know. It's depressing, right? But that's sort of how the practice of medicine and the practice of care has evolved for a lot of people. It's different than what we thought. So we have this passionate pull for change that we help organizations create, and if you ask people to apply that to a handful of prescriptive behaviors based on evidence, not a ton, because as we know, people aren't good at making massive change in bulk. We need to have very prescriptive change. That gets results, and when people see results, it fires them up to do the thing. Not because they know evidence says it works, but because I saw it work. And this is the flywheel that we coach organizations to adopt, it's our metaphor for cultural transformation. And like a flywheel, it takes energy to start it, but once it starts, it's almost self-perpetuating and hard to stop. So I thought I'd share with you today, not just a bunch of like, here's things you ought to do, and here's things we've learned. I thought I'd start with like what we've learned about when change doesn't work. Because this is a nice opportunity at these sessions with senior executives to sort of hold up a mirror and see are there any of these symptoms happening in our organization. Now, the title here is really important. I didn't say when change doesn't occur, I said sustain. Because making improvement in an organization is not that hard. Sustaining improvement, very hard. And um, to contrast the difference, I like to use a non-management example for this. Now this is a rhetorical question, don't answer it, it's a little awkward if you do. But has anybody ever lost weight for a few days? Like, that's not hard, right? Short-term improvement on weight loss, not hard. I think there's a reason flu season comes before beach season, frankly, because that is a really, you know, if, if you have your Fitbit watch Bluetooth scale connectivity happen and you get the flu, it's going to go a boy, human. I don't know what you did this week. You said you wanted to drop 20 pounds in two months. You're halfway there and it's Friday. Just keep that up. That's not sustainable. And as you know, because this is the work that you guys teach on the front lines, that change is never single modal. It's multimodal. And it's not just about believing to do things differently, it's actually taking action and doing things that then at time you end up understanding and delivering. So here's what we learn when change doesn't sustain. The first is that organizations that make improvement that fades away, they miss this point that I just talked about, this flywheel, and here's how that looks. I go ask staff, okay, let's uh, let's fast forward from today. How many of you have heard of something called the Quality Manual yet this week? Marvin, this is a good art, let's just check out show of hands, that's not enough hands, we need to reteach that session, okay. So, are there some things you're gonna go back and try to do at your organization or sort of assess based on that? Is there any change that you're gonna make after this? Nod your head in this direction just for the purposes of this rhetorical, thank you. Okay, good. Now, you're all gonna to try to make improvement. Now, I'm gonna come visit your organization in six months and there's something that you wanted people at your frontline to do. And I'm gonna say, hey, just curious, why are you doing this thing that I understand is supposed to provide better quality? In a lot of places, the answer is going to be, because my boss said so. And I'm going to say, well, why did your boss say so? And they go, because Karf told my boss to say so. And why did Karf tell your boss to say so? So that we can keep getting paid, I guess. I don't really know how all this stuff works. And you go, oh, no, that's not what it is. This is actually about providing the kind of quality our mission says we need to. This is supposed to take you less time and give better quality care. But when people believe it's because the joint commission makes us, or my boss makes us, or CARF makes us, what you get is people taking action when the Hawthorne effect is shining brightly on them and they know they're being monitored. And as soon as the Hawthorne effect is off and you're like at a conference in DC, I'm just saying, like they're not doing the behavior anymore. That's about engagement. Engagement's not the same as satisfaction. Engagement's about giving discretionary effort when nobody's watching. And let's contrast those two words too, because we're talking about the difference between improvement and sustainability. Let's contrast satisfaction from engagement. Your job is not to have satisfied employees, your job is to have engaged employees. And I would argue, as a guy who spent a lot of time in quality and safety and patient experience, your job is also not just to have satisfied patients, you want engaged patients. To be engaged, I have to be satisfied and competent and willing because it's not just about having skill, it's about skill and will and clear expectations and barriers removed to be fully effective. But if you wanted to have satisfaction in the workforce, that's easy. Here's a tip, so if I work for you, usually until five o'clock, but today I wanna hang out with my boys, Sam's 11, Jack's nine, they're in soccer and Boy Scouts. Let's say I wanna go hang out with them at three o'clock today and I say, hey boss, can I go home today at three? And you say yes. I'm very satisfied with that, right? You guys should all work for Philip. He lets you quit whatever you want. Great job. He doesn't even care if you go to work. It's great, totally satisfied. How engaged am I that day between 3 and 5 o'clock in your mission? Not at all, I'm hanging out with my kids. So you know these aren't synonyms if I can be 100% on one scale and 0% on the other. Have have you ever heard of, uh, you've of you've heard of absenteeism, right? When people aren't present at work. Have you heard of presenteeism? Right? You guys work in this field, right? Affecting presence, has been time. There are times when you have employees who are physically present but not necessarily contributing back to the mission statement, commensurate with the dollars you are paying them for their time. So number two is lack of a balanced approach and a critical mass, but I'm going to skip that to talk about the next two. The next two I refer to as the timeless truths of leadership. Any study you look at, any industry... If you look at organizations that sustain world-class success, so my data set for this is the Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award recipients. So since the 1980s, the White House, uh, through the National Institute of Standards and Technology, has created a prize to identify role model U.S. businesses that have both practices and results that others can learn from. And there's been about 130 recipients of that award since the 80s. There's been about 25 or so in healthcare. Um, We've coached about two-thirds of them. We're a recipient as well as a small business. We've coached a school district that's received that. And in all of those circumstances, the two things that they have in common that puts them world-class above anybody else is that they have a culture of accountability where when we say we're going to do something, we do it. This is a culture that doesn't have excuses. This isn't a punitive culture. But an accountable culture takes your mission statement and manifests it into reality. So think about your mission statement for a second, get it in your brain, and you're the senior executive, so I'm just gonna pass a mic, and if you could all recite it, that'd be great. You're looking more nervous than you should be. Okay, so um, about your mission statements, okay, so uh, five frogs are on a lily pad. Did you hear that I'm from South Louisiana earlier? Okay, five frogs are on a lily pad, one frog decides to jump. How many frogs are left on the lily pad? That was a loud response. So when I heard this, I said four, because when I went to LSU, there was two tracks in the curriculum. You could learn to read or learn to count. And I learned to count. I took that track, and uh, I I heard five on a lily pad, one decides to jump. How many are left? It's got to be four. That was subtraction. That's a sophomore-level class at LSU. And so I figured that one out. Um, The typical answers I hear are five and zero. Now, I'm glad that there was a loud response, and it was not the awkward response that I've heard three times. Three times I said five frogs are on a lily pad. One decides to jump. How many are left? Three times somebody goes, six! And I don't know how my face is supposed to react to that. Like I'm, I think you said five or zero. So five frogs on the lily pad, one decides to jump, five frogs do remain on the lily pad because deciding and jumping are different verbs. How many of you have heard that before, by the way? (laughs) Interesting, where the origins of these stories come from, right? Your mission statements are statements of declaration about what you want to achieve. So are your strategic plans. By the way, that is the least differentiating thing I see in organizations is the strategy and the mission statement. I've never seen a mission statement that said, well, we can stop the diagnosis, I've seen the problem. Whoever wrote in the mission statements that our mission is to not suck as bad as we did last year, that seems a little baseline. Like The mission statements use words like excellent, world-class, you know, provide all these great services. But the only thing that matters is whether we did And so systems of execution and accountability tend to be the differentiators more than the intentions. And by accountability, I don't mean just at the top. I don't mean the board and you in the room. Because usually that's pretty good. Usually you have like some annual goals that you want to achieve, right? So usually you have a strategic plan that says what we want to do big picture over multi-years. You have an organizational set of priorities, financial goals, quality goals, people goals, all those goals. But here's where it breaks down the individual leaders on your team, the managers, supervisors, directors, vice presidents, senior executives, are they evaluated based on objective measurable goals or on competencies? And if it's competencies, let me just tell you the scenario I see too often. We get called in because the organization got a D on their report card last year, right? If you have the red, yellow, green stoplight methodology, it's reds and yellows. We're not performing well, we need to improve. So then we ask our human resource leader at that organization, hey, can you give us the distribution of how the leaders graded out last year? Like how many of them got a meets, does not meet, exceeds, significantly exceeds? And what do you think we see in those organizations where the organization got like a D or an F? How did the leaders grade out? What letter grade do you think they got? A's, A pluses mostly. And you go, how can this be? that the organization didn't perform well, but all the leaders did. And then we ask the next question, which is, hey, HR leader, could you send me the evaluation you're using for these? And we see very narrative, subjective, competency-based evaluations. And do not hear me say competencies are bad. They are necessary, but they are also insufficient. Competencies are necessary and insufficient. If you're a leader, you're held accountable by your external stakeholders for outcomes and so should your organization hold leaders accountable for outcomes in their area. What's their little balance scorecard? And you know who likes that? High performing leaders love that. It turns out that only about 13% of workers on the planet Earth are actually engaged in their jobs. In leadership ranks, it's only about 40%. In healthcare leadership ranks, it's only about 60%. And the problem with those 60% is that if the other 40% aren't as engaged, They can be up to seven times more productive than the ones who are less engaged. And over time, that means I'm either going to regress to the mean and be less productive like them, which is not good for your results, or I'm gonna quit and go to another organization that rewards the hard work I've been putting in to overcome barriers. If you're in a culture where we reward simply the competency to do it, then that's not a culture that rewards the high performance. Now, I will say this big caution on accountability. Because I told you there's two timeless truths to sustainable excellence. One is a culture of accountability. But accountability without training we call cruelty. How many of you ever went from buddy to boss in your career? Right? You're leading a group of people one day, and the day before that you're the peers, right? And uh, I'll tell you where I see this the most, back to my nursing colleagues, like nurse managers, holy moly. Like, The biggest source of leadership in US healthcare delivery writ large across all different sectors is nurse management. And the way you typically become a nurse manager is that on Monday you're a nurse, on Monday afternoon your boss quits, Monday evening your boss's boss comes to you and says, hey, you ever thought about being the manager on this unit? And you go, no, I kinda like being a nurse. And they go, oh, I didn't mean full time, would you be the interim manager on this unit? And how long is interim nurse management? 32 years, Isabel. we're going to look into making that permanent. You seem to really have earned your stripes on that one. And overnight, right, so yesterday you were accountable for an N of 1 yourself. You had to abide by the policies and procedures of the organization and not screw things up. The next day, like in acute care hospitals, average span of control is 40 people. So now you have 41 people you're responsible for. And how much training and development did you get overnight? One of the problems we have as organizations as we mature, and it's fun because as an industry, Healthcare is trying to mature. Addiction treatment providers as an industry within that trying to mature, and each of the organizations is on its own maturation journey. Part of the maturation journey is understanding that management is its own profession. Just because you're really good clinically and technically doesn't mean you've learned all the things written in journal articles since World War II about how to better manage, inspire, engage, recruit people. There's evidence about how to bring talented people into your world. There's evidence about how to actively create the kind of culture that your results need. But too often we say, "Is well, she was really good with the patients and has good interpersonal skills. She'll probably figure out this management stuff. That's not fair to her. That's not fair. They were professionally trained in that last role. So organizations have a responsibility to allow leaders and managers to be effective. And you cannot be effective if you're not competent. And as I said earlier, you can't be engaged if you're not competent. I have a, a family member who's a physician assistant, and he loved when he was working in orthopedics. He had an opportunity to move to another organization and was working in trauma medicine. Six months later, he quit. And when I asked him why, he said, I didn't feel like I was safe in the job. They were asking me to do things I hadn't done before. I wasn't getting the kind of training, and I hated it. In fact, I'm quitting the whole profession. I'm out. And I see that organization after organization of people who take one for the team and get into management, even though in healthcare that's not necessarily what they signed on for, and didn't get the kind of skills backfilled to be successful in the role, and didn't produce the results that contributed to disengagement, burnout, and they quit. And so you gotta break that cycle by the two timeless truths here, both a combination of accountability and leader training. So what does that look like? I would encourage you to have everybody from a manager to CEO have their own balanced scorecard. And the only things you can answer are numbers. Not long subjective narrative statements about efforts. Then you need to have a 90 day scorecard. Do you do any things in like 90 day increments in your world, right? So one thing in the next 90 days that's most tied to this goal. And we're gonna move forward together on that plan. And then we would ask every 90 days, you also ought to pull all your leaders together for a non-optional training session. Why non-optional? Who shows up for optional training? You, you're here. You came to this event, right? There's people in your community that aren't here that you were like, I wish John was here this week. That'd be great. He's the guy who needs this. And and when you offer training in your organization, it's optional. It's going to be the people who are already engaged who sign up and take it. And it's the unwashed masses that really need it. And so you have to make sure the tide is lifting all boats and make sure that that training, and here's what we prescribe every 90 days, offsite, mandatory, you know, supervisors, a CEO, one to two days worth of training And it's not just to build competencies, it's to build leader standard work. After this session, we all commit to doing the following behavior, which requires knowing it, but having accountability to do it. Number five is a problem we'll probably contribute to this week at this conference. Have any of you already found something you want to do when you get back home? I hope so, because it's like lunchtime already, man. You've been in all these sessions this morning. So the danger with weeks like this is going home with like 16 triple-starred A-priority action items that you're going to put into place. If you do that Monday, you're going to freak some people out. And what we coach is have a very methodical, relentless approach to having one thing that you're going to hardwire into your culture that's non-negotiable before you move on to number two. Otherwise, here's what you're going to perpetuate in your culture, flavor of the month improvement. Have you ever heard that at your place? Have you ever brought a book back or seen somebody bring a book back from a conference? You're like, we're going to read this book this semester. And they're like, that's great. I'm going to put it on the shelf with the other seven that you said we're going to do and not do this either. I'll go to the pizza party and the pin that you're going to roll out and do the champ thing and then just forget about it. Because this is going to fade away. Because I've been here 25 years. You've been here too. The average tenure of a CEO is just a few years. I'll wait you out. I've done the math. No problem. Number six, oh, by the way, there's eight of these, and in a second I'm going to ask you to vote with a show of hands of which of these you think are the biggest opportunities for improvement at your place. And because I know it's hard to just pick one, we'll use the Louisiana voting rules, so you can vote as many times as you want, um, okay, on these. Okay, number six is, uh, yeah, I mean, we know we ought to have these standards in place for everybody, and we, we have, like, a rule book, we have a policy manual, we spend a lot of time on our non-negotiable ways we're going to live in our values and our standards of behavior, and we train leaders on that. And you know, Frank on our team, man, he's just automatic. And and about 15% of our teams like Frank. Like we didn't even need a rule book if we just hired a bunch of Franks, we'd be great. Uh, Susan, you know, she's good. She's probably like two-thirds of our team that are solid or middle performers that are doing a good enough job. They just need a little more experience or tenure on the job. But man, then there's Craig. And there's about 10% of low performers like Craig. And I don't mean this pejorative that, you know, it's not that Craig isn't worthy of dignity and respect and a good human being with potential. Craig has exhibited a pattern, though, at this point, not just of episodes, but a pattern where I can almost rely on him not doing the right thing. And in all the organizations in this room, you've got somebody like that. And if I had to take a guess and we did a survey and asked all the supervisors on your teams, like anonymously fill out a survey, how many of your team would you say are high performers, how many are middle performers, how many are low performers? My guess is it would come pretty close to that distribution I just said. It's amazing how this holds true. About 20% or so high performers, about 10% or so low performers, and the vast majority would sort of go in that pretty good column, which is the lifeblood of the organization that's important. Each of those human beings deserves a different conversation with their leader about how they can be successful. And we're going to talk about that a bit today because I think it's probably the most important behavior we can do is honor their patterns of performance with behaviors that either reinforce what we've seen working well using shaping and simple plans or point out very clearly what has to change if they decide they want to stay in our organization. I didn't say fire them. You know, what they have to do do differently if they want to stay at our organization. And if not, they might be returned to the community. Okay, so number seven is an inability to spread and standardize best practice. There is something happening at your organization worthy of journal publication that hasn't spread down the hallways yet. So how do you find that stuff? And then number eight, it's not hard being good most of the time. That's easy. Your worst performing employees are usually pretty good most of the time. The hard thing is variation. And in healthcare, variation is the killer, right? There is an evidence-based way to do this care protocol. There is evidence-based ways to manage and lead people. There's evidence-based ways to deploy our mission day-to-day. We know how to do that. We've decided to jump off the lily pad, but doing it consistently every day, even when John called out sick, and I'm short-staffed, because that patient really requires this of me, that's the hardest thing. Okay, so here's your chance to vote. You can vote as many times as you want. Show of hands. How many believe that number eight is a big opportunity for improvement at your organization? People in the front row who don't see that anybody in the back row is not holding their hands. That's awesome. Okay, number two? Number three? Number four? Five? Six? Seven? and 8. Did anybody raise their hand for all 8? Because there was a lot of hands. Raised lots of times. Okay. So uh, here's the fun thing. So uh, Marvin, John, team, thank you for coaching me well because uh, I'm now prepared to talk about where I saw the most hands go up because you told me that's what they were going to say. This is pretty fantastic. So when we coach organizations to put all this stuff into place, We ask them to adopt a leadership operating system that we call evidence-based leadership, and it should be the complement to evidence-based medicine. This is how we deploy best practices on management in the organization to create better places to work and practice medicine and receive care. And most organizations, to contrast this from the typical approach, they go over on the right. You know, you see a problem in the organization, your results aren't what you want them to be, and so you put on your good scientific method lens and go attack it. Is anybody using things like uh, PDCA or Lean or Six Sigma? Has anybody got exposed to that yet? So that's not a ton of hands, but probably you know a few tables worth of folks in the organization. That is great. You know, having a fact-based approach, very Deming-esque. And I heard this morning there was a reference to this, right? If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. I mean, that's just that's sort of truth one in this world is that. If you, if you want to manage something, you have to have measures of effectiveness. And those typically are twofold. They're outcome measures and process measures. Outcomes to know if we hit it or not and processes to know if we're on the right track or not. And pretty much everything you do in your enterprise ought to have a bit of both. And somebody ought to be accountable for those things. On that notion of accountability, we have a, a phrase that if everyone's accountable, then nobody's accountable, right? So no, I mean, who individually is waking up thinking about that measure today in your organization? So here's what the, the way we harmonize all this. It starts with having on the left side of the organization, on the left side of this chart, that I start my performance here as a leader here knowing what's expected of me. Now, when I got hired, I knew what you expected of me because I had a job description. Do you guys remember your job descriptions? If you haven't looked at them in a while, Uh, might be depressing, but go back and look at your job description because that first few bullets was like what you're supposed to do here. And did any of yours have one of the bullets that said other duties as assigned? Do you remember that bullet point? So there's a professor who stands in front of a class with an empty glass jar and begins filling the jar full of rocks until the rocks are to the top and asks the class, "Now is the jar full? class goes, I guess, yeah. And then the professor goes behind her desk and gets a bag of gravel and pours the gravel in. And then a bag of sand. And then a pitcher of water. And asks the class, now what did you take away after seeing this? And a student says, well that's a great metaphor. Like whenever I think I can, I can always just cram a little bit more into my jar. And the professor says, no, the message is quite the opposite. The message is if you don't put the big rocks in first, you will never get them in your jar. Those first few lines in your job description are supposed to be your big rocks. The things in your strategic plan are supposed to be your big rocks. Does every leader on your team today know what their big rocks are? The three to eight non-negotiable things that are the reason that they have a job today. The three to eight ways that you're gonna keep score with them about whether they had a good year or not. And then the really wicked question, would you and that person answer this the same way? And this is where we see all this fall apart, is step one. The organization is held accountable by its stakeholders for objective measurable goals. The senior executives are held accountable for objective measurable goals by the board to some extent. But then it quickly fades into competencies where we don't see that same level of accountability and sense of ownership deployed throughout the organization. So you'll see accountability and leader development create that first block of alignment in leadership Then, though, we can't just have competency and say like, well, you should just go engage people professionally. Like, I got a job. I got to staff this unit. Like, I don't have time to just go out here and do all this stuff. So we want to make it very practical. What are some very easy to understand uh, non-negotiable behaviors that we all commit to doing? And then the performance management piece is what do we do with patterns of performance with those high, middle, and low performers? And then how do we make it consistent for standardization? And what I thought I'd do with you today is spend more time in that middle two boxes. Because I I hope that you'll get some takeaway that you can start doing at your place that doesn't require capital investment or hiring us that you can go get some results with. So I'm gonna prescribe two things that I believe every organization, if you have leaders, customers, and employees, these are two things that should be happening in the organization. So the first one, and let me describe this slide for a second, the graphics from the cover of the book that I uh, got to research around engagement And the left side is sort of the evidence about what people want out of leaders at your organization. Now, you have senior leaders and supervisors in an organization. Which of them has the biggest day-to-day effect on employee engagement, senior leaders or supervisors? Supervisors all day long. I joined your organization because I loved the mission, the pay and benefits were good, and it was a good drive to my house. And in the exit interview, when we don't lie to HR about this, because we don't want to burn bridges, but in the exit interview, when they say, Craig, why are you leaving? Well, I joined the organization, but I'm leaving the boss. People join organizations, they quit bosses. I love the macro system. I can't stand working in the micro system. All the stuff in the handbook looked great. That's not the way Craig brought it to life in our unit. And if you ask people what they want from their supervisors, number one is like, Communication, and if I had to guess how many, well, let me see, show of hands, how many of you have actually done a formal employee engagement survey? Great. And if I had to guess what's in the, one of the top two or three positions, the word communication would probably appear there. I would levy a mortgage payment on that because I don't think I've worked in an organization where that hasn't been in the top three spots. Now, that manifests differently in different places, but I've never been at the place where I do staff focus groups and they go, what's working well here? feel fully informed. So I'd I'd start with that, feel fully informed, great. And it's amazing, and by the way, what do patients want from their care providers across all sectors? What's number one on the list? What do I want out of the person providing me healthcare? What do you think it is? Listen to me. Which is a depressingly low bar to differentiate, right? And I think there's a Maslavian hierarchy of needs on that. I think what you really mean, if you saw the technical quality patient, is uh, don't hurt me, heal me, be nice to me. And the be nice to me involves that. But the emerging evidence is actually that listen to me is not just a be nice to me thing. That is a quality thing. And if there's a book I would prescribe, other than the one footnoted on the slide that I authored, uh, it would be the book that was released this week from our company called Compassionomics that reviews over 400 published articles about the link between compassion and and quality outcome in medicine. And if there's a podcast I'd recommend that I just stumbled upon driving yesterday morning, have any of you ever heard of uh, Hidden Brain on NPR, Shankar Vedantam. So Sunday's podcast was about the power of the placebo effect and how the emerging evidence is that actually, it's not that the placebo effect doesn't do anything, but it's actually that the interaction they have with the trusting relationship with the care provider is more powerful than an awful lot of traditional Western interventions. The act of sitting with you instead of standing, making eye contact, building rapport with you, listening instead of interrupting, doing paraphrasing, using healing touch, the stuff that, by the way, you guys are leading a lot of the rest of healthcare in, that's not like a nice to have. There is a growing clinical case that that is how medicine needs to be provided. And that's what our employees want too, good communications, uh, set expectations. Employees say, could you just tell me what you want me to do when the year starts? And like um, bonus points, if you keep it consistent for 90 days, that would be awesome. Give me feedback on how I'm doing, help me develop, and then we work too hard not to have an air of positivity. And if you did all the research on like the style you ought to have as a leader in life, you'll come upon the domain of transformational leadership. And the summary of that is just, it's all about positivity and hope. And so is our industry, and so is what you do, And so it's nice when different professions sort of all science point to the same thing. So you can learn all the stuff that we've researched around engagement and try to put that into place until your supervisors, and they go like, that's nice, but I'm busy. Like, I got, like, people are calling out, like, I got my, get my head down here. Or you can say, you know what? Evidence has shown that a conversation once a month with each of your employees, it takes 10 or 15 minutes, is gonna touch all these key bases and better engage individual people, and we call this rounding for outcomes. And it's addressing Gallup's 12 questions the Q12 that best predict engagement. So here's the conversation to have. I'm gonna sit one-on-one with my direct report in a quiet area. This is not rounding on a team of people, one-on-one. And by the way, when you get good at it, this should take about 10 minutes. And I'm gonna start with Thomas and say something with Thomas that has nothing to do with work. So when I am rounded on, and I've been a senior leader in our, my firm for 12 years, I teach this stuff, and I am rounded on all the time. That conversation is usually, how Sam and Jack? How's soccer? I know your mother-in-law moved to town this week. How's your mother-in-law doing? That's rounding. And by the way, it's going great, in case you want. she's nice. I actually like my mother-in-law. Bonus points. Great. So uh, that's the first thing that you do. Because work is too important, too much time spent to not have a human connection with people. And that's what they want, a positive and personal connection. So I'm going to start with that. Uh, one of my favorite questions I get is, well, I want to do this practice. What if I don't know anything personal about the people that report to me? Find out. Like, that is, that's a low bar, dude. Like, find out something about the human being. Okay. Step two. Next question after a personal connection is, and this is a weird question, what's working well for you, Thomas? What's going well here? And some people are going to have to pause on that, and go, you just asked me what question? Like, going well, like... Well, I mean it was nice that last week Keenan helped me with that patient and actually came over and said he had a little extra time and that just that's what I really value about Keenan as a coworker. And when you hear this, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to write Keenan a note. In fact, the best, the breakthrough in this era of text messaging, I'm actually going to take out a piece of paper. Do you remember paper and a pen? And I'm going to write it and stick it in the mail. Do you remember the mail? And I'm going to send it to Keenan's house and say Keenan This week, Thomas went out of his way to let me know what a difference it made when you asked him if you could help him last week. I know it probably seemed like a small thing, but that's what we've come to appreciate about how you model the value of teamwork, or whatever you call that value at your place. Use the words. It didn't go unnoticed by Thomas, it didn't go unnoticed by me. Now, here's the science behind that. Thomas works for me. The two of them are peers. Both of us are getting a win on this. Keenan appreciates that Thomas took the time to manage it up to the big guy, and they appreciate the big guy got to hear this. Now, you guys in the room are the big guy. Do people always say nice things about you around the dinner table that work for you? No, they don't. Let me just burst that bubble. Any time that the thing was not approved in the budget, it was because of you. Has anybody ever had the title CFO or currently have the title CFO in here? CFOs? CFOs? Has anybody ever called you the CFO? No. I mean, until today, and now they all will, right? Like, Hey, look, if it was up to me on my unit. I'd give that to you. But you know, Mark, Mark won't let you have that. Tough, tough, cheap, Mark. Nope, not going to happen. See him. No, no, no. So, this is an opportunity for senior leaders to actually say some nice stuff. And here's some nice stuff said about that. It was pretty cool. So, first thing is a personal connection. Next is what's working well. The third question I'm going to say is, and it might come out in this, is, hey, is there anybody I can thank who's been helpful to you? And if the first question didn't get it, that will. And by the time you've done this a few times, people are going to be prepared with these answers. It's powerful. So, personal connection. What's working well? Is there anybody I can recognize? And then you're going to ask the questions about improvement, like, are there any processes or systems you're working with that could be improved? Or you're going to round on, like, I know you use the electronic health record for this. How's that working out for you? Watch what you ask. Uh, I know that you work with this department a lot. How's that relationship going? And then, when you get really good at this, there's a few things you're going to do. When you ask them questions, you're going to sit there and write it down. Or we have software, you can type it in. Because a relationship, when I'm asking you for input and I'm taking notes, what does that convey about me? I'm listening, I'm probably gonna do something about it. Don't start this, though, unless you're gonna actually do something with the information you hear. Because the way to imperil trust in a relationship is ask for input and do nothing with it. Because if I come back to you again in a month and say, hey, let me start all over again, ask the questions, you should start with, well, what happened with the last conversation? This is usually the first practice we coach organizations to roll out. When we coach organizations, it's usually multi-year to transform culture and hit lots of results. And almost always we start with this, why? Because to start that flywheel spinning, to have a passion at the front line, staff have to see employees go first, uh, their leaders go first. So I'm not making you, staff member, do anything first, I wanna build a better relationship with you, I wanna see what the irritants are getting in the way, I wanna help you re-engage, and then we're gonna start making some more change in your roles. That sequence of leaders going first is critical. And rounding, uh, and if you wanna learn more about this, We'll first ask, like, the people we coach in this room. They can tell you all about it. In fact, y'all should just round on guests and show them how that looks this week. because I know the two of you can do this. Go to our website, studergroup.com, type in rounding for outcomes, and you'll find all that you'll ever want to read on it for free. Two questions I'm going to ask, rhetorical questions again. One being low, ten being high, how values-driven is your organization? A ten is, man, I'm glad you asked this question. Because if there's one thing I care about, it's our values. We actually spent some time writing them out a few years ago. Everyone on our team can name them. And we don't miss an opportunity to thank people for them and and, and be all about it. So that's the first question. Do you have your number? Don't share it, but do you have your number? The next question is, how well do you deal with performance issues of people in your organization? A 10 is, I'm passionate about this. We don't miss an opportunity to say thank you and people are doing it the right way. We praise in public, but we also coach in private. And I've learned the skill, and we've standardized that across our team that when somebody's not living in accordance with this, we cannot tolerate that because it's too important to our mission to allow people not to live in accordance with our values and standards. And a one um, one of my favorite questions that I do focus groups is, what would get you fired here? I love that question. What would get you fired here? I was at a medical practice in South Texas, and somebody goes, well, a few years ago... Uh, One of the assistants showed up with a knife and threatened to kill one of the doctors, and we fired her. I'm like, all right, that's a good start. That's a good start. You're at least a one. Uh, What else you got? Mm, I can't think of anything. All right, well, you know, felonies, felonies. We'll go with felonies as the answer to that question at your place. Do you have your number on this one now? Your answer on the first question can't be any higher than your answer to the second question. And usually there's a little tension in a group of healthcare leaders with this, because we believe we are very values-driven but as you know and teach, it's not values-driven to know that someone is not living in accordance with our values and not say something to them. All we're doing is prioritizing our own sense of discomfort because I don't want to have that awkward conversation over what they need to hear. If there's somebody who's not living in accordance with the team values or not providing the kind of patient care that we want and we ignore it and we don't tell them how they can, in a kind, caring way, right? Because we have to... Uh, The person is always worthy of dignity and respect in a conversation. Sometimes it's a skill issue. I'm not mad at Craig, and I'm intolerant of the behavior happening again. And so no matter what happens on the other side of the table, I'm going to stay calm and focused and remind them that if this happens again, here's going to be the next step of the progressive process. And I hope that doesn't happen. But I've seen this in my own career. Um, In fact, probably the way I've learned about this, that coaching is actually an act of love and caring, is uh, from one of my colleagues, um, did Beth Keen ever come to your organizations? Anybody ever meet Beth? I don't, I don't think we were coaching your teams at that point. Beth was a speaker on my team. We lost her to a long fight with breast cancer about five years ago now. And Beth had this amazing ability to connect with people. Really funny, great storyteller. And she was doing an event like this. She was up on a stage at a particular organization. And at one point, like the organization like, turned on her. No eye contact, she was just losing them. Now if that happened here, and it's not, y'all are great, but I would be all up in your face, right? Like, if Thomas isn't paying attention, I'm going to, like, come present next to Thomas here, right? And, and you're going to have to be with me. It'd be kind of hard. That wasn't working either. She's like, oh, I'm just bombing today. It's terrible. It's the worst presentation I've done. So she kind of gets back on the stage, like, I'm just going to sort of gut through this, you know? And at that point, the CEO, who had been seated in the back of the room, stood up, walked down the center aisle, and said, uh, Beth, I need to talk to you out in the hallway right now. She goes, well, that must explain. It. I must have said something so terrible that they have to do immediate corrective action with me. So she said, I, I signaled the AV guy who was filming this and we took a little break and went out in the hall and the CEO said, Beth, I feel like I should tell you that as you were presenting, your sweater has um, risen up and parted from your skirt and your uh, belly is sort of exposed and I thought it was sort of distracting to the audience and you'd want to know that. <laughs> so Beth says, now what do you think I told Jerry? that I said, Jerry... How dare you correct me? It's a fashion choice in my late 60s. I always present with my midriff showing. She's like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. She's like, I I turned seven shades of red. He was already nine shades of red, right, just having this conversation. She said, I got back on stage, and I began again by saying, I hope you appreciate what a kind and caring man you have leading this organization in Jerry, because how easy would it have been for him to say nothing Right? Because that was obviously an uncomfortable conversation to, for him to have. But because he cared so much about your learning environment and me, he had a conversation that I'm sure all of you know is a little awkward, right? Now, she did say, Now, I did tell the AV guy who is filming this at the break, like, you are filming me. Like, oh my gosh. And the AV guy says, Honey, I was just trying to keep the frame above your shoulders, which is <laughs> the best response ever. Coaching is an act of love. And I would think of any group in healthcare, this is the community that gets that, right? Having a conversation with somebody that can support their ability, even when it's uncomfortable for the people to speak that truth, is an act of love and caring. And the role of leadership inside the organization doesn't include the word comfort. I don't get to duck that. That's what leaders are about, is making hard decisions in difficult times. I was at a small town in Georgia. In fact, I didn't know how small it was until they referenced what it would be like if they lived in a bigger town, and I hadn't heard of that place either. And uh, and we were talking about these sort of conversations, Then he goes, look, Craig, I know that this guy on my team isn't meeting expectations, but if I have this conversation with him, he coaches my son's little league team. And I said, so you're saying that's going to be a really uncomfortable conversation for you to have with him, right? And he goes, yeah. And I said, yeah. And so you ought to really learn the skill of doing this to still preserve dignity and respect for the person. But what you're doing is you're placing your own sense of comfort ahead of what he needs, his peers, and ultimately our mission, because you're not comfortable having the conversation that he obviously needs to be successful in his career, either here or somewhere else. But to know it and not speak it is only being kind to yourself, not him. And what we see when organizations sustain success, I mean, I'd love to tell you, that when we coach organizations to get to like Baldrige levels of excellence, it's with all the people that started. I've never seen it happen. And that is not because Studer Group comes in and says, you need to fire these people. We we don't prescribe that. We don't say fire the bottom 8%. I want everyone to have the opportunity to be successful. And what we would prescribe is with your high performers, now here's something you can go back and do today. In fact, you can do this by phone. High performers deserve more attention than they get. Usually all of our attention, we're spending 92% of our time on the 8%. Shift that. Start now spending more time on your high performers because nothing's worse than losing a star. And here's the conversation to have with a high performer. So Thomas, I wanted to take a moment and sit with you and tell you why I've really valued the seven years of service you've given to our organization and why I hope you're here for seven, 14, 21 more years. And I know we say these things past in the hall, but I just want to spend 10 minutes telling you specifically because I didn't want to take it for granted. So um, the way that you were able to overcome barriers and bring me solutions instead of asking me for that, that is, I don't ever worry about when you've got the ball on this stuff. Um, And I'm going to say two or three things. And then I'm going to say a question that you're going to be scared of. I'm going to say, Thomas, is there anything that would be getting in the way of you staying here another seven or 14 or 21 more years? Now, what are you afraid Thomas is going to say? Show me the money! Not if you set this up right. Not if you set this conversation up right. And high performers are a group of people. We're going to usually say things like, yeah, there's like that committee this formed. would you support me doing that? Or I want to get my 16th master's degree, would you support me doing this stuff? It's amazing what people say about this stuff. And we're gonna have this conversation, we're gonna close again with some, another note of high performance. With the solid performer, we're gonna do the support coach support sandwich. Say some things we like about that, have one thing at a time we wanna work on a development and close again with affirmation. And with low performers, we're gonna have a sit down conversation about what specifically they need to do differently if they choose to continue working here. In a kind, respectful manner that separates the person from the behavior. And what we found after a round of low-performer conversations, and by the way, this isn't just like you, we want 100% of employees in the organization each year to receive one of these three conversations. That's when it becomes standard work and it's not just good cop, bad cop, good manager, bad manager, it just becomes a way that we lead forward If you start with about 8% of low performers and you have an accountable dashboard of results, provide leader training, and have these conversations, what we've seen is about a third of those low performers actually improve, stay in the organization, and are no longer in that category. A third will opt out. And you will resist your temptation to throw a small party because that's not respectful, And then, but you will. And then a third will have natural consequences that follow because they choose not to do the behavior. And so we see about a 2% involuntary turnover rate of those that are uh, not performing to the standard when organizations really sustain this work. So in closing, I'll say this. It's very easy to think about changing the organization and changing the industry, but those are both inanimate objects. The only thing that changes is individual people. You can't change anybody, you can't engage anybody, but you can create an environment that supports their ability to change, and that all starts with role modeling. And so I'll end with uh, this one request, the only weird thing i want to make you do. Everybody, if you make this symbol, and then go ahead and place it on your chin. I said chin, so look around the room. (laughs) Leaders, people are going to do what they see you do, not what you say to do. So you're all the frogs on the lily pad that have decided to affect the mission. Doing that is gonna take a different level of science and execution. There is a set of known best practices out there that we're seeing adopted with great success, and we hope you found something out of today that you can start to put that into place. Uh, It's been an honor to work with you today. I look forward to uh, any follow-on conversations one-on-one as we get you to the next session, and of course, I'm always available to you online. Thank you very much. Take care.